Du hører på Litteraturhusets podcast som presenterer bearbeidede versioner av samtaler og foredrag fra Litteraturhusets program. Er du interessert i mer information, kan du gå til litteraturhuset.no for oversikt over alle våra arrangementer. Good evening everyone and welcome to the House of Literature and welcome to this uh, week devoted to the best writing of today on racism, power, whiteness and privilege. I would like to start tonight with a quote from one of the bravest authors I know who said the following. The further you are from being a heterosexual, white, middle-class, able-bodied man, the higher the price you pay. You have to decide if you are willing to pay that price, if you are able to pay that price. My name is Andreas Delset, and besides from being a heterosexual, white, middle-class, able-bodied man, <laughs> uh, I also have the privilege of working as the artistic director at the House of Literature, which makes me even more humble and honored and grateful that I'm able to introduce tonight's guest of honor. And tonight's guest of honor is indeed the source of the quote that I just read. Roxane Gay is a writer who, with great sensitivity, complexity, and originality and sharp humor, writes about gender, trauma, being an outsider, and what it means to live in a black body. Her best-selling essay collection, Bad Feminist, is widely considered the quintessential exploration of feminism today, and in 2017, Gay released her highly anticipated memoir, Hunger, a memoir of my body, as well as the short story collection, Difficult Women. And her debut novel, uh, Untamed State, was released in 2014 to critical acclaim, and with her Marvel comic album, Word of Wakanda, which we, are we have devoted an entire event to after this one, Gay joined a very exclusive club of invited guest writers in the Black Panther universe. And as a columnist, and, and, and. For the New York Times, she has been one of the most distinct and clear-minded um, voices in the American Me Too debate. Roxanne Gay's original voice has moved her readers and critics alike, whatever genre she has written in. And like so many of the best writers today, her work defies labels and categorization. Yet at the same time, throughout her work, there is a distinct nerve of emotional intellect and literary style and after you have read her, it becomes perfectly clear why people frequently use words like humoristic and sharp, and, and smart, sorry, sharp and sensitive, courageous and vulnerable in the same sentence when describing Gay's work. Abuse of power, sexual assault, and gender roles is also something tonight's interviewer, Elina Lundfjern, has explored in fiction and writing. And like Gay, she has critically explored what it means to be a feminist today. Please welcome them on stage, Elin Lundfjern and Roxanne Gay. Um, thank you. Um, and thank you so much for coming, everyone. Uh, I know that many people are sitting in other rooms and watching the stream, so welcome to you as well. Uh, but most of all, uh, welcome to you, Roxane Gay. Thank you. <laughs> to the uh, Oslo House of Literature. Uh, and I want to start our conversation by uh, asking you about work, um, because you work a lot. Never heard of it. <laughs> you work a lot, and you're extremely prolific. Um, and in Bad Feminist, you write about your relationship with the, with the work that you do. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and I will read some of this um, that you're saying. People often misunderstand me, misunderstand my motiv motivations. The pressure is constant and suffocating. I say I'm a workaholic, and maybe I am, but maybe I'm just trying, like my student, to show how, how I'm different. Uh, and you talk about this student of yours who uh, was ir irritated by the fact that you uh, hadn't given him an A. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's really, <laughs> it's really about the pressure to deliver good work as a black person uh, and how black people often have to be 10 times better uh, and hard, or hardworking in, in order to get the same kind of credit as white people. Um, and can you talk more about what that experience has been like uh, for you and do you still feel that pressure? Um, yes, of course. I certainly feel that pressure. I think a lot of it at this point is internally applied, and I think that I set very high standards for myself. But I do believe that there's a price that you pay for black ambition, and it is that you feel like you always have to perform at your best, and you always have to put perfect work into the world. Otherwise, you won't get another chance. And there's a reason why a lot of black creators feel this pressure, uh, and that's because it's true. It's not, <laughs> it's not something that we've like imagined. And uh, so, you know, that pressure is always there. And I remember that student very well. He was one of the only black students I've ever taught. And he was irate that I gave him, I think I gave him a B, it might have been a C, and frankly, that's what he deserved. And he, he just thought that because he was well-spoken and because he showed up, that he deserved an A. And I was like, I mean, that's the bare minimum. Uh, like, you're supposed to do your homework. That's why you're in school. And so it was really interesting to see the ways in which each of us internalized certain pressures. And he was more focused on the grade than the actual experience and in figuring out what he needs to do to get an actual A. Uh, and that, you know, it's just a, a grade, like, relax. <laughs> but I also understood that for him it was not just a grade, that for him a perfect GPA meant something. And so it's, a, it's an interesting and complicated and oftentimes unpleasant tension. Hmm. And you started writing when you were four, yeah, I read? I did. I mean, um, I wrote age-appropriate things at four. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, what were you writing at four? I was writing little stories. So I would draw villages yeah. on napkins. I, I have no idea where this came from because we did have paper in the house. But I would just draw these little villages and then write stories about the people who lived in the villages. And I'm talking like three-word sentences. So it was not the height of sophistication. But I loved it. I loved that I could make things up and be in control. And I never lost that love. Hmm. When did you start feeling that kind of pressure that you're describing? Do you remember? Uh, always. I, I think from kindergarten on. Mm. Because part, and if, during grade school, it was not externally induced pressure. My parents are really intense. Uh, Haitian parents are just very extra and <laughs> very committed to doing well in school. And so we had no choice but to bring home straight A's. Mm. Like if you brought home an A minus, we would get in trouble. And so I had already internalized by the time I understood how the world works that you have to be excellent. And I understand in retrospect what my parents were doing. They were preparing <laughs> us for a world in which we had to be black. Mm. Uh, but uh, I think I would say as early as kindergarten. Mm. 
Mm. But was it less pleasurable, pleasurable, pleasurable then? The work, or do you, oh, for sure. I'm, you know, I did always love school because I'm a nerd. I loved <laughs> learning. I loved reading, and I also loved being the best. There's something very satisfying about being great, <laughs> <laughs> and everyone like having to acknowledge it. Uh, and I, I took it pretty far. I used to correct my third grade teacher, Mrs. Carroll, and she would punish me by making me go read in the hallway. <laughs> I was always like, bye, <laughs> I'll see you later. But she was wrong. Um, so, you know, math is math. It was undeniable that she had done this calculation wrong and she got really pissed because I told her in front of the class instead of pulling her aside. But it didn't even cross my mind that I should pull her aside. I was just trying to be helpful. <laughs> I was a really annoying child. <laughs> But uh, obviously, you read a lot. You I did. Didn't, didn't I read just constantly. Um, did you read a lot of Black American literature? As I a did child? not. No. No. Uh, I lived in Omaha, Nebraska, and so, <laughs> and my parents are Haitian, and so I had access to Haitian literature, but I had no access or knowledge of Black American literature because we lived in this predominantly white place. Uh, I don't even know that the librarians at the Millard Public Library read black authors, and this was, you know, things are much different than they were in the early 80s mm. and the late 70s, so I just had no access to it. I didn't really read my first black author, black American author, until high school. Mm. Yeah. What were you reading as a child? I was reading A Little House on the Prairie by Laura Ingalls Wilder, best books ever. I know they're problematic, but they're amazing. Uh, and it, frankly, everyone is problematic. All of these old white men are so problematic. And I love how everyone is like, oh no, we can't deal with Laura Ingalls Wilder. Just, she's like the last in a very long line of racist white people. Um, so I read a lot of that. And I also read well above my pay grade. My parents didn't care what we read as long as we read. They didn't know that they should be like checking our reading lists. And so I read a book called Clan of the Cave Bear, <laughs> which is how I learned about sex. <laughs> and now I can only have sex on a rug. Um, <laughs> imprinted at a very young age. So I read a lot of like pulpy, epic novels. I read a lot of James Clavell, um, Michener, and yeah, I loved epic. Mm. I loved being lost in a book. If it was over 500 pages, I was really into it. Mm. Uh, and you recently wrote a very beautiful piece in the New York Times uh, about Toni Morrison, mm -hmm. uh, who passed away uh, earlier this month. Uh, and you write, um, everything I am and ever will be as a black woman who writes begins with the work of Toni Morrison. Um, and can you talk a bit more about what she meant and still means to you as a writer? Uh, and how her work affected your own? Yes, I first started reading Toni Morrison in high school. And I had a, a poetry slash literature teacher named Dolores Kendrick, who's a really great poet. And she gave us a reading list that included uh, Beloved and I think The Bluest Eye. And it was the first time I had really read a novel by a black woman. And I was astounded by just the ways in which she put words on the page. It was just astonishing. And she was writing about black women's lives. And 
I had also never seen that. It had never really even occurred to me that black women's lives could be centered and be the whole point of the narrative. And so I just loved it. And I continued to read her work, Song of Solomon, which I think is probably my favorite novel of hers. Um, Sula, Tar Baby, Home, God Bless the Child. Uh, these novels all just did really interesting things with black womanhood. And they did so in very artful ways. And she's just lyrically a gorgeous writer. And I just learned so much about the power of language and what you can do and what genius looks like on the page and how we should aspire to that as writers. Hmm. Um, and I want to move on to uh, talk about Bad Feminist now. Never heard of it. <laughs> uh, in the book, you write about uh, privilege, uh, mm -hmm. and in a very nuanced way, I think, and with a lot of empathy. Um, and you write about the importance of acknowledging it, mm -hmm. um, but you're also critiquing the ways check your pr privilege, uh, that phrase is, uh, gets tr thrown around. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think people misunderstand uh, about that phrase? You know, I think a lot of times people use accusations of privilege. They accuse people of having privilege as a, a poor, you know, offensive tactic to derail conversations and to not really have substantive conversations about any given issue. As if, if you have privilege, you're not allowed to speak on a given issue. And if we work from that, that means no one in the Western world is going to be able to speak because everyone has a, some level of privilege. And it, so it's really frustrating when, especially online, people say, check your privilege. Like, what the hell are you saying? <laughs> uh, words mean things. And it's, it's really frustrating that people think that something so facile it means that they've done something. And they do it with such righteousness, as if they're really taking a stand. And it's frustrating. That said, I get where the instinct comes from. Uh, the reason I think a lot of times people in the social justice space say check your privilege is because so few people actually do check their privilege. Mm. And I do think it's an important instructive for all of us to really sit down and take stock of the goodness in our lives and the advantages that we have. If you're educated, you have privilege. Uh, if you're white, you have privilege. And you know, white men love to talk about their childhoods Um, <laughs> when you talk about privilege and they say, you know, I grew up poor, and that's actually something worth talking about because that means that you should understand marginalization in some way. How come you don't? Um, and that because they've once experienced hardship, that means that they have no privilege now. And it's, it's just really frustrating that we have these very black and white understandings of privilege and that we can't bring nuance to these conversations. Uh, and if we could all bring nuance, and I include myself in that, uh, to conversations about privilege and our positions in the world, I think we would get a lot further than we're currently getting in when we're trying to address social change. Mm. You say that people tend to play the game of privilege. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you mean by that? I don't know. <laughs> what did I mean by that? Um, what did I mean by that? Oh, yes. So I think, look, I wrote that book like 10 years ago. Um, when we are talking about privilege, people get very invested in just the labels. And so a lot of times, rather than dealing with substantive issues, they are more interested in identifying the various kinds of privilege that people have. And that's it. That's the end of the conversation. 
And that makes it a game. That's a board game. Uh, that's nothing more than that. And it's not productive. Hmm. Um, and it, it is only in recent years that the concept of white privilege um, has become part of a wider global um, discussion. Mm -hmm. And some conservative critics, uh, this, this approach is oftentimes perceived as a, as a result, result of hypersensitivity uh, and identity politics uh -huh. in their mind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, what are your thoughts on that and on the concept of identity poli politics? Well, anyone who uses identity politics as a weapon is engaging in identity politics. Mm -hmm. And anyone who feels defensive when we discuss white privilege is engaging in identity politics. And so I think it's incredibly disingenuous <laughs> uh, that white men in particular get very upset about so-called identity politics, but then turn around and act like white men. Uh, you know, I just think we can all do better. And I don't think there's anything wrong with thinking about identity and being political in that thinking. And so while identity politics is often used as a slur, I don't think it's a slur, I think it's a compliment. Thank you very much, I know who I am, and <laughs> I'm proud of it. Let's talk more about that. And so I just love to fuck with people when they... <laughs> get all righteous about, oh, you're playing identity politics. Yeah, you're goddamn right I am. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. Um, and you wrote these stories between 2010 and 2013. Mm -hmm. uh, as you said, it's some time ago. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of the topics you're writing about has gained massive attention, especially on the internet. Yeah. Uh, now or yeah, the last few years. Um, do you feel like people think you can see the future? <laughs> I can. <laughs> so, you know, one of the most surprising things about Bad Feminist, I did not think the book was going to do well because you can actually go on the internet and print out every essay in Bad Feminist. And so you don't have, I mean, don't do that, but <laughs> if you were so inclined, you could. And yet people continued, bought the book, and it actually sells better now than it did the first year it came out which is really weird. Uh, but I mean, manage those expectations. It's a book about feminism, so uh, I'm not moving James Patterson numbers. But still, I, I did not think, you know, I do always try to be timeless and timely in my essays, but I never thought that we would still be talking about a lot of the issues that we were thinking and talking about in 2010 and 2011. Mm. I did not think that we were gonna still be trying to defend reproductive freedom. Mm. I did not think that we were still going to be concerned about idiot lawmakers. Um, in the United States. And so it's, you know, I think that sometimes people say that, you know, I'm psychic, but I'm actually not psychic. It's just that change is that slow. Mm. And frankly, we're regressing instead mm. of progressing. And I just happened to be talking about a lot of the issues where we're regressing. So it's bad luck that the essays are still timely. Mm but also good luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, many people seem to reach out to you for your opinion and advice mm -hmm. uh, on a range of topics. Um, why do you think people are so drawn to, to your voice? And oh, I have, have a great sing? voice. <laughs> yeah, so you do. There's that, and I'm very attractive, so <laughs> I get it. Uh, no. <laughs> you know, I think that there are a couple things. I think that people respect my point of view and appreciate the ways in which I think through a lot of complex issues. And so I think they know that 
they won't necessarily be judged if they come to me with questions. I also think, though, that we have this frustrating cultural expectation of black women as vessels for whatever people need from them. And so I think a lot of times people don't think twice about unpaid labor and emotional labor. And they just think that there's nothing wrong with sort of just using me as an opinion vending machine. Mm. And I'm not an opinion vending machine. So it can be frustrating, but most of the time the questions and the people's desires to understand like my point of view on something is well-intentioned. Mm. And when it's well-intentioned, I do try to engage with it as best I can. Mm. Um, and obviously you write a lot about feminism in your book. Yeah, I do. <laughs> and uh, how mainstream uh, felt too strict and too narrow for you to begin with. Um, and you argue that professional feminists uh, are out of touch with those who need the movement the most. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about who the professional feminists are and what made you write about? Yeah, uh, I think that there are a lot of people who talk about feminism but don't actually do the work of feminism. And they pick really strange battles that don't necessarily apply to the women who need feminism the most. Mm. So I'll give you an example. There was a popular co-working space slash social club for women only. And a lot of people, a lot of professional feminists, and I would say a lot of, yeah, a lot of professional feminists were like, oh, this is terrible. It's not inclusive. Um, working class women can't come and use this space. Now, that's a very valid concern, and it's something that we should care about, but nobody ever goes and asks working-class women if they want to actually go sit in a social club painted in pastel colors. And so I, I think that we have this idea that somehow from an ivory tower we can dictate what women need instead of going into different communities and asking those women what they need, or more importantly saying, what resources do you need to lead yourselves? Like, I don't know that we need to always be the beacon and always be the change catalyst. I think that there are so many grassroots and activist communities that are perfectly functional on their own, and what they need is money. Mm. And so it would be great if a lot of us would write checks uh, to grassroots organizations that <coughs> don't need us to lead the way. They need us to support them materially. Mm. Um, and you... Talk about being a bad feminist, of course. That's the title of the book. Um, what are some, th some things that make you what you call a bad feminist? Well, the title of the book was two, twofold, and it was originally kind of tongue-in-cheek. I was writing the title essay, Bad Feminist, and I was just thinking through my relationship to feminism. And I knew I was a feminist, but I felt like I was falling short of what I saw as the ideal feminist goals in some of my just ways of being. Like, I listen to a lot of hip-hop, and a lot of hip-hop is incredibly degrading to women, but frankly, all music is degrading to women. Uh, and I, you know, I just think, like, how can I be a feminist and talk about women's equality and bodily autonomy and then listen to a song like Ying Yang Twins' Salt Shaker, which is a great song. Um, <laughs> So it's just challenging to do that. Also, I, you know, and I write about this in the essay. I have no interest in car maintenance. Like, I'm not going to do it. I, I don't care. <laughs> I'm not going to look under the hood. I'm not going to try and solve a problem. Mechanics exist for a reason. Frankly, men exist for a reason. <laughs> and that reason is cars and trash. 
and, and bug killing, I will say. Uh, that's it. Uh, if you can't do those three things for me, I guess we don't have anything to talk about. Um, so I just worried that I would not be able to be a feminist and feel that way. But the more I thought about it, the more I understood that, of course, I'm a feminist. I'm just flawed. I'm imperfect. I'm a bad feminist. Ha ha. How clever. <laughs> Uh, but the other side of it was a little more intentional in that historically mainstream feminism in Western contexts has prioritized the needs of heterosexual, able-bodied, middle to upper class white women, uh, straight women. And so if that's good feminism, then bad feminism has to be the feminism that's more inclusive and that thinks about working class women, uh, queer women, women of color, um, disabled women, and you know everyone else who is on the margins of womanhood. So I, I do think about that quite a lot, and I'm happy to call it bad feminism if it gets people thinking about the complexities of womanhood and how not all of us move through the world in the same ways, even though we are all women. Hmm. And you talk a lot about intersectionality. Mm -hmm. um, do you see that set of thinking uh, playing a bigger role in modern feminism today? Or I hope so. But I think a lot of times people use the word wrong yeah. and don't understand what it means. And they just say the word intersectional mm -hmm. as if that means that they understand what it is. Like, you're just saying the word. Uh, so people are talking about it more without necessarily knowing what it means. But we're getting better, mm -hmm. I do think. And we are thinking more carefully about inclusion and just thinking about how different community women, yeah, different communities of women have different needs. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. And we can try and accommodate all of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, and one definition of feminism that you mention in the book is uh, women who don't want to be treated like shit. Mm -hmm. um, is there one perfect definition out there? Of feminism? <laughs> yeah. No, but no. I think that in 2019, we have no business talking about definitions of feminism. Mm. I, I just think that it's such a, it's such a distraction and so often, when people want to derail feminist conversations, they say things like, what is feminism? What do you mean when you say feminism? Like, mm -hmm. it's 2019. First of all, access a dictionary, m-w.com. Mm -hmm. um, and so we don't need to be having these conversations. We know what feminism is. And so and the better question is, how do we apply um, what we know about feminism to our actual and lived lives? Mm. But still, as you say, that words matter, yeah. and do you still think it's important that uh, whether young women identify themselves as feminists? I do. Yeah. I do think it's important, but that said, I'm not going to dictate to women that they should identify as feminist. Uh, I think that it's a personal choice, and oftentimes people need to really think about what works for their lives and their circumstances. I wish more young women would feel very comfortable calling themselves feminists. But I, a lot of the problem is that it's kind of like an F word. There's, people think it's a negative, and it shows that they're making trouble mm -hmm. and that they're trying to challenge power. And so I get the fear. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that if everyone was just a little more brave and recognized that there's nothing wrong with believing that you're equal, if not superior, to a man, uh, <laughs> it, it's going to be OK. Yeah. Um, what was the turning point for you personally that made you think of yourself as a feminist or become aware of these um, 
issues. I don't know um, that it was a turning point. I just no. think it, it happened gradually. Mm. I just the older I got and the more I understood the privileges I had and the more I understood the privileges other people did not have and that we live in a generally wealthy world and that we could try and solve a lot of these problems, the more feminist I became. Mm. Mm. How do you think uh, the feminist movement has evolved in recent years? You talked a little bit about it, but um, um, is it easier for people to accept that women who call themselves feminists sometimes will enjoy inappropriate, inappropriate things and <laughs> uh, have in, inconsistent ideas? Um, I think that we're having broader conversations about feminism. I do. And I think we're starting to see what feminism in action can look like, not only in the United States, but in other contexts. So, for example, we're seeing women in Saudi Arabia driving for the first time. Uh, we're seeing women in South Korea who are rebelling against very rigid beauty standards in that country and who are trying to create more... In I think they're trying to make lives women's lives in South Korea easier um, because there is a lot of misogyny there. Um, we're seeing it in the United States with the rise of Me Too and people talking openly and actively about sexual violence. And uh, so we're starting to see these things happen. We're talking more about intersectionality and thinking more about intersectionality. And so I think that's really good. And I do think that many women are committed to uh, bodily autonomy and reproductive freedom. Mm -hmm. So that's great. Uh, I just wish that we could start to get even more complicated than like these very basic things that we're still having to deal with because mm -hmm. misogyny and the patriarchy are so recalcitrant about actually letting women just live their lives. Mm. Um, do you think social media makes feminism a more challenging proposition or do you think it... No. Social media made makes it everything more challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Social media is fun and it's wonderful, but it's also a trash hole um, <laughs> from which you can not really emerge. Uh, and I like t social media. I like Twitter. I hate Facebook. I, lo I love Instagram, even though it's owned by Facebook. Uh, Instagram is great because it's one way. I'm just going to show you a picture. And it's going to be weird, and you're going to have to figure out what I meant. And, and that's fun. Uh, but I do think social media has allowed feminists from around the world to have conversations with one another. I think that it has allowed feminists within individual countries to have conversations with each other. I do think it has created unnecessary misunderstandings at times, but that's going to happen in any group and social media is not responsible for it. That's just what being human is. Mm. And so I, I understand where it comes from. Uh, for the most part, I think social media is great. The problem with social media is that it has put a lot of feminists in danger. For the past two weeks, uh, black feminist Ijeoma Aluo has been swatted and she has had to leave her home because some white supremacist misogynists put her name and address on the internet. Her teenage son was home alone when the police basically tried to knock down her door with a SWAT team because they had gotten a phone call that there were gunshots being fired at her home. Fortunately, she had called the police a few days before to tell them that she was probably going to get swatted, and so uh, one of the officers called her to make sure um, what was going on before anything really terrible happened. Uh, they are delivering pizzas that need payment to her mother's house. 
Um, you know, it's just constant harassment. And that's what social media has done. It has allowed really horrible people to be in conversation with one another and to engage in targeted harassment. They have driven a great many women off of the internet because of their behavior. Lindy West, who is a prominent fat activist and feminist in the United States, was driven off the internet by trolls because they were just relentless. I get a lot of trolling too, and there, I, I'm, I don't know, I think I'm like one incident away from leaving Twitter. It's just, you know, I have a life, and I don't know that I need that much toxicity in my life just for having opinions. Mm. Um. But did you feel like it was worth it to begin with? Or how, how has that changed? Has, has it become more of it, the trolling and the hate? Uh, it's become more pronounced because I've become more visible. Hmm. Anytime I write in the New York Times, I don't even go online for a couple of days. I don't, or I don't look at my mentions for hmm. a couple of days because I just know it's going to be terrible. And it doesn't matter what I'm writing about. Like, I got hate mail for writing an elegy for Toni Morrison, which I, is the most neutral thing I think I've ever written about. <laughs> I wrote an essay for them about how I hate the beach, because I hate the beach. <laughs> I don't want sand in my body. Uh, and so I got hate mail for that. And so if that's the hate mail I get for innocuous things, you can imagine the hate mail I get for having really vocal opinions. Uh, it's really frustrating, and at times I don't know that it's worth the price. Mm. I do not. But the alternative is to not say anything and to not do anything. The alternative is silence, and that's exactly what they want. Mm. But every time I do an event, I worry that I'm going to get shot. Mm. And I have security more often than not. And that's absurd, that I need security at my events and that I need to be followed around by a man with a gun so that I don't get shot. Mm. Um, and I'm like a middle-of-the-road feminist, quite frankly. I'm a centrist. I'm accused of it all the time. I'm not proud of it. I'm trying to get more radical because I think we need to be more radical. <laughs> but I'm accused every day of being a centrist. And so I'm just like, if you have a problem with what I'm saying, like, wait till you meet someone who's truly radical. Uh, <laughs> and uh, then like, your mind is going to be blown. <laughs> yeah. And did you experience the same hate and feedback on your books? Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, it's, you know, they're equal opportunity. I'll give them that. <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter. Um, two days ago, I was on ABC. I was on a TV show called Backstory. It's a new TV show on ABC and ESPN about backstories to sports scandals. And so it's the first episode. And I was talking about Serena Williams and the incident with the uh, Empire at the US Open last year. And I didn't know when it was going to air, but I knew it had aired when I opened my inbox. And um, there were, the title of one of the emails was Crazy Monkey N-Word. And I stupidly clicked on the email. Like, I don't know what I thought I was going to find there. <laughs> like, oh, maybe this is a joke. Ha <laughs> ha. Uh, and I there had like 10 of those emails mm -hmm. from different people. And what's really interesting is that a lot of times these are people who are business owners and they don't hide their names and they give me their real email addresses. And so I share them <laughs> on Twitter. You're welcome to do with whatever you want with that information because uh, I'm not a pacifist. So <laughs> good times. <laughs> Um, 
But something I, I really loved um, about the book is that even though you write about these really difficult and complex issues, you managed to do it in a very relatable and uh, accessible way. Um, and one essay in the book, um, it's called What We Hunger For. That's mm -hmm. uh, been discussed a lot. Um, and in that essay, you managed to do this very seamless transition from talking about the Hunger Games mm -hmm. to um, your own personal trauma. Um, and why did you choose to tell the story in, the, in that way? Hmm, that's a good question. I think it was because I had just read all three Hunger Games books, <laughs> and I was late to them. I read them about, I think, two years after they had come out and everyone had loved them. And I don't like to exercise, but I do go to the gym every day, unfortunately. <laughs> I don't recommend that. <laughs> and so one of the things I like to do when I'm doing cardio is I, that's when I really actually get my reading in. That's the secret. People are always like, how do you read so much? called a Kindle. Come on, guys. <laughs> Try it out. And so I read these books, and I would just like stay on the treadmill because I was so into these books. I just loved the whole story, and I still, to this day, reread them whenever I can. And it just made me think about strength and resilience. And one of the things I loved most about how Katniss was portrayed is that she was actively suffering from her trauma. She was great, and she was a hero, but she was also damaged. Mm. And there are very few narratives that allow for people to be more than one thing. And it got me thinking about my own trauma and how I have managed to make a pretty good life for myself, but still, I also have this trauma. Mm. And I'm still also dealing with it to this day. And so the parallels, to the, the parallels felt very organic, and mm. so I decided to write that essay. You say, I think that many of your essays seem to have a personal component, mm -hmm. or they do, <laughs> but they also jump off into wider themes. Mm -hmm. Why is that important to Well, if it doesn't look outward and expand into broader themes, it's a diary entry. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I um, know that no one wants to read my diary. <laughs> And so I do think it's important, to, if you're going to write from the personal, that you find ways of connecting personal experience to larger issues so that people can understand and have ways into that conversation with you. Mm. Um, and you also talk about um, the ongoing discussion about female characters in fiction mm. um, who are routinely split into good and bad and whether they are likable or uh, unlikable. Um, and this is something I recognize um, from my own books, um, like critics who struggle with um, to see the female characters as authentic oh, um, yes. because they behave badly or they just don't like the character, so mm -hmm. they don't like the book. Um, yeah, if they don't want to have sex with your character, that's it. Exactly. It's all over. <laughs> um, what are, what are the dangers of focusing on likability in characters, do you think? Well, the danger is that it's extremely limiting. We already know that there are all kinds of restrictions that we place on women in the actual world. But when we start to place those same restrictions on women in the fiction, fictional world, then what do we have left? I just think it's a terrible precedent. And yet we see it all the time. And we see 
reviewers across the gender spectrum oftentimes engaging with, oh, I didn't like this character, so I couldn't stand the book. And I always just think, are you trying to be friends with the character? <laughs> and are you going to invite them over for dinner? Like, why do you care so much about whether or not you like the character? I often find that the unlikable character is really interesting. I, I want to see, like, just how terrible they are. Mm. Uh, and I think that a good writer makes unlikability readable. Now, there are unlikable characters that are poorly written. And yes, no, you should not read that. And that's not fun. But when it's well written, I, I just think there's so much there. There's so much narrative richness there. And uh, I always wanted, I want people to just be more open to it. Mm -hmm. And I, I, part, of, part of it is self-serving because I write a lot of really unlikable characters. And people are always telling me, like, I know Miri from my novel was kidnapped and went through a lot, but oh, she's such a bitch. <laughs> like, yeah, sometimes bitches get kidnapped. Like, <laughs> it happens. Like, this idea that only really kind and saintly women are get, get kidnapped is absurd. Uh, so, you know, we just have to, I think, create more space for nuance and complexity, and that's really an undercurrent of all my work. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the book, you also written a list of advice uh, called <laughs> How yeah. to be friends with, a, with another woman. Yeah. Um, and where, where do all of these, these myths surrounding women's relationships come from, do you think? Uh, men, of course. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, men. There are like three men here, and I'm really glad you're here. <laughs> yeah, you guys are going to get laid tonight. It's going to be great. Um, I'm just being real. Uh, so, no, I actually wrote that essay not as an essay, but I had really great friends in graduate school, and they were women, predominantly. And one day I was drinking some wine and writing my dissertation, and so, of course, I thought, well, I'm going to write a love letter to my friends. And I was just thinking about how much I loved them, and so I made up these rules about, because they were the ways in which we shared a friendship. This was how we treated each other. And I've just felt so blessed. And so then I just, I don't know how it got into the collection, but I, I remember looking at it one day thinking, huh, maybe someone else will appreciate it. And I just think that we have these ideas about women, like, you know, that women, we, women can't be friends and women's friendships are toxic and bitchy. And it's like, well, that might be the case, but it's not because they're women. It's because they're horrible. <laughs> and, you know, I know plenty of men who have toxic, bitchy friendships mm. with each other, and they're straight. Wait till you go on a golf course. <laughs> um, and so I just think that we have to dismantle these ideas. And with that essay, I was definitely trying to dismantle those ideas and just, again, create space for women to be human. Like, and maybe sometimes you are toxic and bitchy, but guess what? The world doesn't come to an end. I don't know why we consistently try to write everything about women off when we're imperfect in one way. Mm. But why do you think so many women, I, at least I remember people saying this from um, my upbringing, that they take pride in having mostly male, male friends. friends. Yeah. I used what to be that, that girl. About? I used to, I, up until my early 20s, I would say most of my friends were guys, and I would be like really proud of that, mm. as if that made me likable to men and therefore more valuable as a woman. Uh, I was just very young. <laughs> and anytime a woman is mostly friends with men, she leads with it. Like, it's really interesting. You'll notice it from now on. Like, it's the first thing she says. It's like a vegan. Like, 
<laughs> it just comes up for no reason. Like, you might be going to the movies and be like, I'm vegan. <laughs> Congratulations. I used to be a vegetarian for many, many years. I'm totally down with my vegan friends. Oh, by the way, do you guys watch that great cooking show about vegetables, Vegetator? It's like, that's not the right word, but it's so good. It's two very ruddy women with bright cheeks, and they cook vegetables for half an hour. Anyway, I watched it today. It was very good. Um. <laughs> um. Never know where the road's going to take you. <laughs> no. Um. And one of the essays that uh, I've thought about a lot uh, after I read it is the one called Illusions of Safety. Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned how you travel with um, a security guard. And Sometimes. Uh, but that's, um, but uh, it's, about, it's really about trigger warnings. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like we see more and more of this. And we also talk about no platforming and um, silencing. Um, and you write that people are given the illusion that they can be protected. Um, can you talk a bit more about that and what you mean by, I mean, what, what is the problem with trigger warnings? Uh, I don't know that there's a problem with trigger warnings. I just don't use them and I don't believe in them. And I think it's an individual choice. The challenge for me with trigger warnings is that what do you put a trigger warning on and why? And what does it say about difficult topics if we're not willing to engage with them without a warning label? That said, it doesn't matter if I care about trigger warnings or not or if I believe in them or not. Trigger warnings are useful to people who need them and we also have to respect that, which is what I was ultimately conveying in that essay. But I just feel like when we put a walled garden around difficult topics, we start to avoid them. And I don't think anything is served. And a lot of times the trigger warnings can get really narrow. So oftentimes you'll see like racism, trigger warning for racism. But like we have to be able to engage with racism. So how do we do that? And I think in the context of the classroom, which is the context in which I wrote that essay, I think a good teacher prepares students and does trigger warnings without formally calling it trigger warnings. I know that when I'm sharing a sensitive text with my students, we talk about it before they read it. I don't want anyone to ever be blindsided and just come away from a book traumatized. So one of the books I often teach is J.M. Kutzi's Disgrace, which is about post-apartheid South Africa and sexual violence and misogyny and so much more. It's a brilliant novel. I highly recommend it. And in talking about it, I do prepare my students for the different kinds of things that they're going to encounter in the novel without giving away the plot of the novel. And I, it all, I think that's a useful way of doing it. But when you write trigger warning on the top, I just, for me, I find it to be a bit much. And I find it to just set an uncomfortable precedent. Mm. Uh, and you, you've known for writing about difficult and dark stuff, but you're also a big fan of pop culture, and you, <laughs> you watch The Real Housewives I of do. Beverly Hills. I do. The Bachelor. I do. And you love Channing Tatum. I, I love him. <laughs> I love him. I love him, and he smells like a pine forest. He is just so thick and beefy, and 
it turns out he's really kind and really funny, and we're doing a project together. Um, I was going to ask you about that. Just by the by. Have... <laughs> I can't tell you what it is, but it's really, really good. <laughs> and yeah, so I do have pop culture interests, and I think this idea that we can't, as scholars and intellectuals, that we can't enjoy the world that we live in is really weird. And I think that pop culture is just part of a cultural spectrum, and that it's all connected, the political, the socioeconomic, um, the cultural, and the pop cultural. So I'm never going to... Uh, put pop culture in a little uh, prison. No, I embrace no. it all. <laughs> what What do you think is the appeal of these shows, like The Bachelor or The Real Housewives? Uh, you know, it depends. Everyone is different. The Bachelor, the appeal of The Bachelor is this appeal of the fairy tale. Mm. And I think that's why all of us who watch it, watch it. I watch it less and less because it's so formulaic now that there's no more surprise. But in the first few seasons of the show, you would really believe, like, oh, man, you can find love in six weeks so long as you go in a helicopter. Uh, and, I mean, who doesn't dream of that? But, like, 20, 30 seasons in, when you realize, like, only five of the couples have, are, have made it, uh, and the divorce rate is 50%, so, like, they're well below the curve, uh, it's just... You know, you know it's a farce. And it's also so manufactured. They ply these people with liquor and put them in closed, isolated spaces where they don't have access to the news, the internet, or cell phones for two or three months at a time. And so it's artificial. And I think that if you are media literate, you know that it's artificial. And, and I do think media literacy is important for everyone. Uh, so I just have to balance what common sense tells me and what my soul tells me. And my soul tells me, yes. <laughs> Hannah's going to make the right choice. <laughs> she didn't. Um, I just realized we don't have a lot of time. Um, okay, they're not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I want to talk a little bit about hunger. Um, and I need to see what I... <laughs> um, and you said in an interview... Um, I think writing always gives us control over the things that we can't actually control in our lives. And in this book, it's quite obvious what the thing is that you can't control. Mm -hmm. um, but what are some other things in life that you have written towards controlling or understanding? You know, I think everything I write in some form or fashion is about what I can or cannot control. Uh, you know, my place in the world, the state of politics, the state of women's rights and women's freedoms, uh, the state of people of color and our ability to not get killed by police officers. Uh, those are all things I can't control. But when I write about them, I like to believe that I do have some measure of control in that I can contribute in a very, very small way to change, I hope. Mm. And that helps. And how did you choose um, which details to include in this book and which not to include? Um, Yeah, with hunger, it's a memoir of my body. And so the rubric I set for myself in writing the book was if it related to my body, then I included it. And if it did not relate to my body, I left it out. And that was a really good, useful tool in terms of making sure that the memoir stayed focused. Mm. Um, I think I read somewhere that you thought a lot about how writing scenes that describes sexual violence 
can potentially contribute to um, normalize mm -hmm. um, violent behavior. Mm -hmm. um, what decisions did you make while writing it, um, while also thinking about the potential consequences of it? Yes, so I wrote an essay in 2009 called The Careless Language of Sexual Violence, which is in Bad Feminist. And in it, I was thinking about the ways in which we depict sexual violence in fiction and nonfiction in books and film and television. And oftentimes, people treat it as this sort of gauzy, romantic, sort of sexually consensual experience. And it's really awkward to do that and really dangerous to do that because it minimizes the impact of rape. And that's not to say that everyone experiences rape in the same way because they do not. But I do not think we need to be glamorizing it in any way. And so I just wanted to be honest in Hunger when I was writing about my assault. And I just put, included the most relevant details mm. and the things that I thought were the most relevant, um, as opposed to what I th thought readers were going to find most relevant. And I tried to be as circumspect as I could because um, I told my parents not to read the book, and so far they've listened, but should my father read this book? There are just things he does not need to know mm. uh, because he's very sensitive and we're very close and I would not want him to, I would not want to hurt him. I would not want him to be upset. Mm. And so I just thought about my family. I thought about my partner and, you know, like, do you want them to have these images in their mind for the rest of their lives? And the answer is for me was no. And so I thought very carefully about that. Mm. Um, and how is your, um, understanding of power and sexual dynamics changed, um, if it has? Mm, I don't know. I don't know that it has changed that much. I think it has changed in that the older I get and the more mature I get and the more therapy I have, I understand <laughs> that just because you've once been victimized does not mean that you cannot have healthy sexual relationships and exchanges of power with mm. your partner. And so I did not necessarily know that in my 20s, for sure. And I think it's only something I started to learn in my late 30s when I started to just date a better caliber of people. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I think that's one of the biggest evolution. Mm. Um, and there's a question that I want to ask you, but I think it's a, real, a little bit difficult to ask, mm -hmm. but I want to do it anyway. Um, because you write at some point, in the book about sort of uh, desiring your mm -hmm. attacker. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's this really short passage. You move past it quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and I would imagine that a lot of people found it shocking. Mm -hmm. um, but I also know that this is extremely usual, usual mm -hmm. for people who uh, are victims of sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's important to understand the complexity of that. Um, and it's a difficult question to answer as well. Um, maybe impossible, but do you have any thoughts on why this happens? I, I think that the mind is a very powerful thing. And I think that the mind does whatever it has to protect you. And I think that a lot of victims of sexual violence end up having to fantasize about violation in order to feel anything sexually. It's a really frustrating thing to have to live with because 
there's nothing sexy or good about trauma that you've experienced. And then when you feel desire thinking about that, not even the specific incident, but just similar circumstances, um, you know, I think a lot of us get filled with self-loathing and just think, what the hell is wrong with me? I absolutely deserved what happened to me if this is like what I'm doing with it. Hmm. Um, but I, I think it's a coping mechanism. I genuinely do. And I think the mind is very complex and I could not begin to understand how and why it happens. And for many, many years, I just felt a great deal of guilt and shame around it. And mm. then um, with the help of a really good therapist, uh, I freed myself. Mm. And that was great too. He was just like, whatever, do what you want. Fantasize mm. however you want, no one's getting hurt. <laughs> <laughs> I highly recommend a male therapist. <laughs> People are always surprised that I have a male therapist, but uh, he's super direct. He always just tells me exactly what he thinks, and he tells me what to do. <laughs> he doesn't like leave it like, oh, whatever you feel. He's just like really direct. And like when I um, say something stupid, he's like, that's fucking stupid. Um, so, and just a little tip. Um. And I want to ask you, like, you've been touring a bit now. You're going to Denmark tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, what is the process like of going out and talking to people about these very personal and difficult things? Like, what do you do to take care of yourself and, and all of that? I don't know. <laughs> I am not great at taking care of myself. Uh, so I'm learning, you know, this idea of self-care, I'm 44, and people my age, it's not something we grew up with, and so I, I definitely am trying to engage in it without using the phrase because it drives me crazy, uh, but I do try to keep a good separation of the public persona and the private and I, I have actually always done that, which I'm very grateful for. I don't know why, but when I started writing publicly, I told myself, keep your personal life to yourself. And so I did, and that has served me so well. And it has kept my family safe. Mm. And so uh, that was great. And so I just turned to my partner, my family, <laughs> my friends, uh, who are great because they've always known me, so they know the best and worst of me and still love me unconditionally. Mm. And to have them in my life uh, is a great grounding. And they definitely give me the strength to just continue to do the kinds of things that I do and to know that when I fail, I have a soft place to land. Mm. Um, and I think we need to finish up soon. But I just wanted to ask you one last question mm -hmm. because there will be an event about the entire Wakanda universe mm -hmm. um, soon, eight, I think. Yes. Um, so this has become an enormous success in popular culture now. Um, and it has become a part of the discussion about black identity and black pride. Um, and I just wanted to hear your thoughts about what that means. Uh, yes, so I wrote a comic called World of Wakanda for Marvel. And it was a really unexpected but exciting project. And one of the best parts about the project was writing about 
an African nation that was uncolonized. And so it gave me the opportunity to think of, to ask myself this, what, was, what would blackness look like beyond the context of colonization? And what would black people be like without the burdens of colonization? And so that was just really exciting and fertile ground. And it helps that I'm Haitian because Haiti was the first free black nation in the Western world, and in the Western hemisphere, rather. And Haitians are really proud of that, like disproportionately. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was the rhetoric I grew up with constantly. And so I always grew up with this like really strong sense of pride. And it came in really handy when I started to write World of Wakanda, and I wanted to write these confident black lesbians uh, who are also badass and who can take down any villain. Um, and so I was just thinking about all kinds of things, but also making sure that I was not trying to write a utopia, because utopia does not exist. Mm. So I was just trying to balance fantasy and fact. Mm. Uh, just want to say thank you for taking time Absolutely. out of your thank very you. busy schedule to talk to us. My pleasure. Mm. Norway is very pretty. <laughs> Du har hört på Litteraturhusets podcast som presenterar bearbetade versioner av samtaler och föredrag från Litteraturhusets program. Del gärna podcasten med familj och vänner via iTunes eller SoundCloud om du liker det du har hört. Följ oss också på Facebook och på litteraturhuset.no för information om flera aktuella arrangemang. Musiken är er laget av Apotek. <tryk>